0: Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 23, and today I want to focus a little bit more on drying of lumber. I have spoken in previous episodes about air dried versus kiln dried and kind of the differences there, but today I want to talk about the process of actually kiln drying it. I've gotten quite a few questions over the last few months from folks who have started milling their own lumber, whether it be with an Alaskan mill and a chainsaw or uh, bandsaw mills, wood misers, et cetera. And they're in a situation now where they've got these, these boards that need to be dried and air drying is certainly a viable option but I also think there's been some concern about infestations and I've spoken on this show in the past about how heat treatment is really the only surefire way to know that you've gotten all those little beasties. So the the, the questions of kiln drying and the different types of kiln dryers out there have come up. So I'm going to talk about vacuum kilns, radio frequency vacuum kilns, uh, dehumidification kilns, and steam kilns and kind of this, not so much the step by step process because it will vary dependent upon species and the volume of the kiln and the thickness of the material you're drying and all that stuff. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about kiln drying today and I will revisit some of the differences between air dried and kiln dried lumber. But you can also go back and listen to the episode on air dry versus kiln dried. I want to say it's like episode 11 or 12. I could be totally wrong there. But anyway, I do want to take a moment to say thank you to the new sponsors over at Patreon. Um, Anytime somebody sponsors a show, it always makes me very happy because... Hey, it makes the show a heck of a lot easier to do. So I do want to say thank you to Stephen, to Dave, to Tiff, and to Daniel. Uh, all of you have become Patreon supporters uh, since the last show. So thank you so much. If you are at all interested in, in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lumber Update. And while we're kind of taking care of business, um, if you want to contribute to the show, if you have feedback, you have a news story you want to highlight, you have a question, you can go to lumberupdate.com. Um, there is a contact form there where you can ask your questions, or you can send me an email directly at lumberupdate at gmail.com. I always look forward to your questions, and uh, they always help me shape the show. So um, let's let's get on when I talk a little bit about some industry news that has come forward. I've spoken in the past about that, uh, what was it, the Finnish study that said if we were to plant uh, plant, uh, like a trillion trees or something like that, um, trillion, a million hectares, oh now I can't remember, but plant a whole bunch of trees, we could actually reverse the um, global warming effects. All of the carbon put into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution could actually be reversed by planting a whole bunch of trees. Well, the Trillion Trees Initiative was introduced into Congress just recently, and by 2050, the plan is to plant one trillion trees, and it's directly in response to this particular study. So what I haven't been able to figure out, and and boy, if you ever start digging into, like, You know How a bill becomes a law, and I don't mean that uh, Schoolhouse Rocks uh, animated guy sitting all sad on the stairs, there's a lot of steps that go into this. As far as I can tell, the Trillion Trees Initiative has been introduced. I don't know if it's been voted into action or where it actually stands. It just says it's been introduced, and there's lots of people getting all excited about it, but it seems like there's still a few hurdles that it needs to overcome. Moreover, there's not really any kind of particular action plan. I think it's a bit early in any kind of legislation for anybody to get too excited about it but it is an initiative that is in direct response to this study so you know that's that's a little encouraging that we could actually see some action being taken along this front so certainly we'll keep an eye on it and see exactly what happens and how many um steps are required and how many people to try to sneak a little amendments and writers onto that. Now I'm getting political. Uh, Yeah, you know how it goes, folks. Hopefully we'll be seeing a trillion trees planted by 2050, just 30 years from now. Um, That could be a pretty amazing change to the face of our planet if we could do that. On another kind of political front, um, the Department of U.S. Department of Commerce has announced that it's going to begin to investigate anti-dumping tariffs on um, moldings and millwork, foreign-made moldings and millwork, which is particularly interesting. The um, anti-dumping tariffs have kicked in on Chinese plywood uh, several times in the last like 10 years. There have been tariffs introduced on Canadian softwoods. Um, Those aren't really anti-dumping, but tariffs have certainly been in the news a lot lately. Anti-dumping specifically is referring to Foreign manufacturers that basically just sell it at ridiculously low prices, just dump their product onto the market in order to um, essentially corner the market by, by making it so inexpensive, and it makes it impossible for other manufacturers to compete when you know their products are two, three, four times more expensive than the the foreign products. And this has specifically been targeted at Chinese-made plywood. Well, now we're seeing the same thing coming with molding and millwork. You walk into any big box store that's got kind of off the shelf crown molding and base molding and things like that. And a lot of times you'll find that it's actually foreign made. Moreover, as more and more composite plastic type moldings, vinyl moldings and things come into vogue in the big box stores, we are finding a lot of those are not made locally either and they are being essentially dumped onto the market at incredibly low prices. And of course that becomes very detrimental to the domestic producers of molding and millwork, let alone even the domestic producers that are not really in the same marketplace, that are producing custom profiles or producing it in in species that are not normally available. Because you've got this product over here that is so much cheaper, it's forcing these custom makers to try to drop their price to be competitive and what's gonna end up happening, what has happened is many, many mill workshops have just gone under, they just can't compete anymore. We've seen the same thing happen with lumber yards uh, all across the country who are unable to drop their their prices any lower in order to compete and they just go belly up. So it, it is a, it is particularly interesting without getting too political. I, I'm of two minds of this. You know, it's it's an open market. You know, the, the Machiavelli in me is like, hey, survival of the fittest, right? But although I guess survival of the fittest is Darwin. But, you know, Machiavelli was along the same lines, very cutthroat and ruthless. It's like, you know, you've got to find find a new market. In the marketing world, we call it the blue ocean. You know, you find... The, the patch of water is not filled with blood and sharks, you know, find that blue ocean, find that new market and, and develop that. It's a lot easier said than done, certainly. And when you are a company that's been doing things the same way for hundreds of years, that can be very difficult to pivot uh, and, and and be agile like that. But I'm also of the mother mindset that we have been regulating that a certain amount of work be done in country when you're importing products. Uh, in order to be in compliance with the US Lacey Act, uh, higher and higher percentages of of work needs to be done before you can import it in. So in other words, we can't import logs, they need to be boards. So a percentage of the work needs to be done, AKA it's sawn into boards in country. Or you buy that uh, little turning blank of coca below and you find that there's a tenon cut on the end of it. And that tenon is that additional work that needs to be done in country so it can be imported legally. We're requiring this, but now we're also coming around and commerce is saying, well, OK, well, now they're doing the work over there and they're selling it for ridiculously low prices. And we don't want that. You know, we want more U.S. manufacturers to make this stuff. It kind of is talking out of both sides of your mouth and it gets to be really confusing. Certainly, I'm oversimplifying the issue from an economic standpoint. There's a heck of a lot more going on there. But I just think it's it's not a black and white issue. And it's really difficult to come down and say, you know, yes, these tariffs are great because it's going to drive more business to the domestic molding and millwork uh, manufacturers. And I work for a company that does a lot of moldings and millwork from custom moldings down to, you you forgive the expression, run-of-the-mill moldings. But, you know, there is a place in the market, I think, for some of that foreign-made stuff. I I don't know. I struggle with this a lot because it really can go both ways. The point of the story being... There is more investigation going under this, and you can expect more than likely to see some dramatic changes in that foreign molding and millwork market as uh, tariffs start to get imposed on that. Changing gears, going a totally new direction. I had a couple of people emailed me this. There is a um, research or experiments going on into a new type of pressure treatment, So pressure treated lumber, uh, for the most part, is we're talking southern yellow pine and it's uh, um, put into a vat of chemicals. Those chemicals have changed over the years to contain less arsenic, um, to be a little bit more uh, user friendly. They're they're infused with this material and allows the uh, southern yellow pine to have exterior ratings that last for decades and decades and decades. This new process could offer some pretty big advantages over the traditional pressure treating where we start with, you know, the lumber in in a, a watertight tank and those chemicals are forced into the boards through pressure. Well, some guys at the Georgia Institute of Technology have figured out a way to kind of do away with those chemicals and get a little bit more waterproof and thermally insulated product what they're calling it well the process is is not a new process it's called atomic layer deposition it's already used a lot in microelectronics for computers and cell phones but now they're looking to essentially um well metal plate the the fibers of the wood um i'm trying to remember exactly what um what materials they use it's a various metal oxides here we go titanium oxide aluminum oxide and zinc oxide and as the the lumber is put into the tank the gaseous form of these metal oxides are pumped in there and they're you know infused via capillary action into the wood fibers and then they deposit on there and essentially you know you take a a, a zinc plated screw at home depot you know that's meant to be exterior related or exterior rated because it's zinc plated essentially the same thing's being done from the inside out On this lumber and it's uh, a a very different process a lot less toxic Um, and certainly it's a proven process as as I said there's been used in microelectronics for a while and now they're starting to uh, bring it across into the wood world so more importantly what I find interesting is a long-standing technique being applied across multiple platforms and multiple manufacturing practices so it's not reinventing the wheel it's just applying it somewhere else but this could be particularly interesting we're still very early on here um, so who knows when we're actually going to see this applied across a greater scale um, and you know certainly long-term testing still needs to be done but it's kind of a cool new development science and wood coming together I like it so I do want to jump into kiln drying here um and and spend some time talking about this as i said this was uh, precipitated by several emails uh, i got an email from jay who has uh, been air drying some lumber and he's starting to see the little sawdust piles from the bugs show up and kind of wondering well, I guess I'm going to have to kiln dry in order to uh, to deal with this. Um, Dan had emailed me, he has been sawing logs into boards, or actually he's got a uh, a contact with a wood miser who's coming and sawing the, the boards for him. And he's looking to, he was asking basically some, some business advice, which, you know, is it's a whole other topic there. But the, the topic of, of do I invest in a vacuum kiln, could that help me kind of speed material to market a little bit faster? Um, I got another email from Jay was pretty much the same question. Um, I've got these slabs and now I've got to figure out what to do with them. So I wanted to talk about kiln drying and I wanted to talk specifically about vacuum drying. I'll, uh, I'll thank uh, Matt Cremona for this since he did those uh, slabs in the vacuum kiln, his buddy's vacuum kiln. A lot of people have suddenly discovered vacuum kilns. This technology has been around for a while. I actually wrote an article about it on the uh, McIlvain blog probably eight or nine years ago it's not a it's not a new technology but a lot of people are asking you know why don't I know more about this? Why did I, you know, have to learn about this from a, you know, shaggy-headed kid in Minnesota? <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Um, it, you know, the the reasons for any new technology or any different technology in a long-established industry are, you know, capital. It can be very difficult to adapt a new technology, especially if the existing technology you're using is working. You know, you've got a lot invested into that, and to switch over entirely can be pretty difficult. So let's let's step back and talk a little bit about kiln drying i've talked in the past about european standard versus north american standard of kiln dry because the european continent has a different climate it's a wetter climate european standards say that the wood is dried down to 12 to 15 percent moisture in north america our standard is six to eight percent moisture content what this mostly means is a lot of the imported lumber especially the material coming out of africa is dried to a european standard. So when we import it in, we do a little bit of air drying and then we re-dry it in our kilns in order to drop it down to that 6 to 8% moisture content. The fact of the matter is that in a lot of areas of the country, the equilibrium moisture content is going to be 10 or even 12%. I know locally 11 to 12% is where my lumber usually stabilizes here on the east coast. Certainly um you know, Colorado is going to be a much lower level, Arizona even lower. It's going to vary throughout the country based upon your own climate. But even in what I consider to be the, the you know, pretty high moisture content here on the East Coast at around 11 to 12 percent, even that is on the bottom end of the European standard. You know, the standard being 12 to 15. A lot of times that when you punch it with a moisture meter, it's going to fall somewhere in the middle of that range and it will drop a little. If I were to leave that European dried material on our lumber yard, it would come in equilibrium, and it wouldn't be that difficult because it's not that long of a step down from say 14 to 12 or 11%. But there's a, it's more, there's more than just the moisture percentage number going on here, more than just the value of, of water in the wood. Kiln drying down to six to eight percent. Certainly the North American climate is drier and we we want to kind of get it down there to um, be closer to more of the equilibrium moisture content in North America. But here's the thing: once you get down to nine or eight percent, there's a transformation that happens in the wood itself. The the fibers are baked and really super, super dried at that point to the point where the cell walls harden a little bit. I've talked about this a number of times in the past, both on Wood Talk and here on this show, about the kind of the idea of the dry creek bed where, you know, a, a, a storm blows through and instead of the, the, the water just soaking into the creek bed, it just sluices right over it and you get that gully wash, you know, flash flood effect because the ground is baked so dry and hard that it actually won't absorb the water. It's actually what we want with kiln drying lumber. As we harden those cell walls, it becomes resistant to absorbing water. Water. Well, as it absorbs water, certainly the moisture content changes, and the stability, or the the dimensions change because it's a hydrosto- hydroscopic material, right? And it's anisotropic, meaning it's going to move more tangentially than it will radially. So it becomes unstable, and that's bad. We don't want that. So if we can prevent the moisture from being absorbed in the first place, the wood will be a lot more stable, which is why you hear people saying kiln-dried lumber is the most stable lumber. It's not that air-dried lumber is necessarily going to move more than kiln-dried. The the movement properties, the percentage of movement tangentially and radially is tied to the species, not to how it was dried. The fact of the matter is is that air-dried, because the cell walls aren't hardened, will more readily, more quickly, I should say, absorb moisture, and movement can happen faster than it would if it were kiln-dried. It's not that it will move more, it will just move more often, quicker, more quicker than the kiln dried stuff. You know, a a storm blows over a bunch of kiln dried lumber and it probably won't even notice. You know, now if it rains and rains and rains in biblical proportions for 40 days and 40 nights, yes, the, the kiln dried lumber will absorb that material. The air dried lumber will absorb the moisture in an afternoon's rain Whereas the kiln dried lumber won't even notice it. It will just shed that moisture. It won't absorb it. And, and, you know, for the same reason, because those cell walls are hardened and they don't act quite like sponges, they act more like that dry riverbed, the moisture that it does absorb will also be shed faster than air-dried material. So in essence, yes, it is harder to work because... Physically, the cell walls have hardened, they've been baked and hardened, so it's going to be harder to plane, it's gonna be harder to saw it than it will be air dried lumber that baking also kind of leaches out some of the color. So in general, air-dried lumber is more vibrant in color. Uh, it certainly has, uh, it's it's more aromatic and there's just more, that color is from the extractives and, and the sugars and all the stuff that's in the wood that really gets bleached and baked out um, when it's brought down to a lower kiln dry temperature. Now, This is very different than steaming. If you've heard of the process of steaming walnut, that is a very different process. That's not what I'm talking about here. Just look at, you know, if you have an air-dried board, poplar is a great example of this. Take an air-dried piece of poplar and a kiln-dried piece of poplar. And, you know, that poplar can have all kinds of greens and purples and grays in it. And then you kiln-dry that same board and it's got that kind of green tan color to it. All those various colors are, are leached out of it during the baking process. So the the pesticide side of things, the pesticide, the bug prevention side of things is, first of all, the heat has killed those bugs. Second of all, it's hardened those cell walls. It's leached out all of the stuff that attracts the bugs in the first place, all the sugars and all the yummy stuff. It's pulled all that out of the wood and the bugs really aren't interested. Plus, well, they're dead. So they're, they're killed in the oven. Um, But the product that comes out of it is also not appetizing the bugs, so they pretty much leave it alone. Now, obviously, I say pretty much because if there were no other food sources around, the bugs may, you know, suck it up and eat it anyway, either that or die. So it's not like kiln-dried wood is impervious to infestation. It's just the last thing on the menu. So now that we've revisited that, let's talk about the different types of kilns. Traditional kiln, probably the, the first modern kiln would be the steam kiln. And this is actually what um, we operate at the Lumberyard where I work. The steam kiln is just a big oven and you've got um, a boiler that is heating up water and turning into steam. The steam is then pumped through uh, pipes in the kiln and the, the heat that comes off of that steam is what's raising the temperature in the kiln the steam can also be um, injected into the oven in order to raise and lower, um, in order to raise the moisture content. So it allows you to kind of slowly drop the, um, the, the moisture, and if things start to get a little too low, you can inject more steam in, and that's changing the dry bulb and the wet bulb temperature in the kiln. Kiln schedules are, are very specific, a certain temperature for a certain amount of time, certain you're, you're looking for a wet bulb temperature for this amount of time, your dry bulb temperature for this amount of time, based upon the species, based upon the thickness of the wood, based upon the total volume of the kiln. And you're following that recipe, if you will. Schedule is a better word. You do it for this amount of time, then you change the temperature, and then you hold it for this amount of time. Those are very specific from, from one species to another. The steam kiln is utilizing that steam not only to heat things up, but it's also using it to control, to control the relative humidity in the kiln. So you are essentially, um, well, for lack of a better word, kind of boiling out the moisture. As the, the heat rises, it's boiling out that moisture. And then you're injecting more moisture in order to control how fast the wood is drying. So you, right away, the outer layers of the wood are going to dry faster because you know they're, they're on the surface. And you, they start to dry and they start to, to shrink and, and contract, whereas the inside is still moist and gooey like a Twinkie and it doesn't want to shrink right away. So you inject a little moisture to slow the outer layers from drying drying while the heat does its job to dry the inner layers and you start to bring things into equilibrium. But then what happens is the outer layers start to or oh, excuse me, the inner layers start to dry beyond the point of the outer layers because you're injecting the steam you know, right onto the board. So the outer layers are getting more moisture. It's it's doing its job and slowing it down, but they're still getting more moisture and they start to put the inside under tension as the inside is starting to shrink more than the outside because of the extra moisture on the outside of the board. That starts to come into tension and that's actually case hardening there. So the final step in, still, uh, in a steam kiln is actually the condition. Conditioning process where now you're just injecting a whole hell of a lot of steam in there and it seems kind of counterintuitive um, why am I injecting so much moisture in here well what that's doing is reversing that case hardening process so little known fact case hardening is is kind of like this four-letter word it's evil and and you know ninth level of hell type stuff case hardening is a natural product of any kiln drying process in order to kiln dry lumber you have to case harden it the problem is when you don't condition it, you leave it case hardened. You have to reverse the case hardening, and that's the other thing. Case hardening is not a a final state. It's something that can be easily convert uh, um, reversed, and that's what that final conditioning stage is, is: injecting all that moisture and removing the tension from the outer layers and the inner layers, and bringing it into you know equilibrium, if you will. You can go too far with that conditioning process, though. And in the process of reversing the case hardening, you end up with reverse cased hardened material where now you've got too much tension and you've got checking on the outside of the board. And that can't be reversed because it essentially started to separate those fibers. And, you know, the only way you could reverse that, I suppose, was glue and some clamps. So it is it's a fine line that we walk. But the fact of the matter is, the steam kiln, um, it's, it's powered entirely off of a boiler. So you've got to have the the power to, to heat up that boiler. You've got to have something, some kind of combustion happening in order to create that steam. Once you've got that steam though, the steam kiln kind of runs on its own, you know, it's pushing steam through and you're injecting and, and drying off, um, drying out the oven and, uh, uh, moistening the oven, I guess, by injecting more steam and that go through that process to get everything nice and dry. And really the only energy you're required is just that boiler to keep the steam going. I shouldn't say really the only energy is it can take a fair amount of energy in order to keep that steam constantly going. You know, think about an old uh, steam locomotive and that guy in the, in the, in the, um, engine just throwing the, the lumber in there, scooping the coal in all day long in order to keep that boiler hot enough to produce steam to move the train. So this was looked at as, well, this may not be the most efficient way to do this, so maybe we should look at another way. So dehumidification kilns came along and that kind of changed the, the story altogether instead of utilizing the steam um, to heat up the kiln, it's all done electrically. So electric heaters are raising the temperature in the kiln and that's flashing off the the moisture, which is then blown out through fans across a a cooling unit, a heat sink, which causes condensation on that heat sink. So it's sucking out the, the, it's heating everything up and then blowing across, blowing that warm, moist air, which is taking up a lot of moisture from the boards, blowing that out of the kiln across the cooling unit where the moisture condenses out and then the dry air comes back in. Now that, that, that dry air, as it's blown across the wood, it's picking up more moisture. It's being sucked out of the kiln, run over the condense, condensing unit, the cold unit, to suck out more moisture. So the beauty here is it's a closed system. You're, you're using the same air through there. Whereas in a steam kiln, you're constantly generating more steam and you're not recirculating it back around so really the dehumidification kiln is just more efficient because it is that closed loop now there's no there's no boiler here so it's purely electrically driven um now it it does use less energy because of the fact that you're reusing that same air but there is a fair amount of upfront energy cost to get that up to temperature and every time you're raising the temperature it's pure electricity put in the the benefit of the steam kiln and actually one of the reasons that we are still using steam kilns where I work we actually had a couple dehumidification kilns back in the 80s and uh, actually all the way up until about 99 we had dehumidification kilns and we found that they were just more expensive expensive to run over time because of the volume of lumber that we push through. So as always with anything, you know, you, you look at the cost and then you have to figure out, well, what's the volume? How much heat do you need? How often are you filling it? Um, you know, there's so many other factors to go into how much it costs to run it. And what we discovered is because we have a millwork on site, AKA we produce a hell of a lot of sawdust. We now can power our boilers off our sawdust. So our steam counts are actually off the grid in that perspective. Because all the sawdust we generate is, you know, there's a big pit full of sawdust and there's an auger that carries that sawdust into a combustion chamber where that sawdust is essentially um, atomized and combusted and boom, heat, steam, wonderful. There's no electricity involved at all and our steam kilns are, are incredibly efficient. They still require a hell of a lot of energy to do that, but the energy required is produced by the sawdust that we already make. So the waste product we're creating to the tune of multiple tractor trailer loads full of sawdust dust is is you know consumed. In fact, we actually produce more sawdust than we can actually burn in our kilns. So it's it's a quite efficient system, but if you didn't have that, then you would have to be use electricity in order to heat up that boiler to create the steam in the first place. You you don't have that combustion element of sawdust. If that's the case, then your dehumidification kiln is much better because of the fact that you're heating up that one time and reusing that same air over and over again. As far as if one dries faster than another, you know, I think you're splitting hairs at that point. They're still producing the same quality of lumber, but it is a very different process to do that. So that brings us to the vacuum or the RF vacuum kilns. These are very different things. Um, I don't remember when they were first introduced on the scene, um, but it's been multiple decades. Probably 30, almost 40 years actually that they've been around. The problem, well, let's talk about the process first. Um, You remember um, Sir Edmund Hillary was the first guy up uh, Mount Everest with uh, Tenzing Norgay, his Sherpa. And he had a cup of tea, as every good British explorer does on the summit. And he was particularly chagrined to find out that his tea was ice cold. Because at that altitude, the boiling point of water is quite low. So I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but we'll just say it's, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Correct me if you want. I have no idea what that number is, but it's obviously cold. And for a you know good uh, good British gentleman who wants his nice hot cup of tea on top of uh, Everest, he was very disappointed when he found that it was quite cold. So the pressure, the atmospheric pressure at that altitude, is so low that the boiling point is quite low of 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 water. The same principles going on here. If we put lumber into Uh, uh, an oven space, a kiln space, and we reduce the pressure, we suck the air out and we create a vacuum, we're lowering the boiling point of the moisture, the water that's in that wood. And essentially you lower it so, so far that that water evaporates all on its own. It flashes off, it boils off out of the wood. it comes out of the inner you know layers of the wood um, evenly from you could have a you know, six eight inch thick timber in there and that water will boil out evenly and you end up with a uniformly dried material. And it does it at relatively the same rate, um, be, because of that vacuum. The water's just kind of all boiling out at the same time, and you can do away with a lot of the tensions that develop during drying that causes case hardening, that requires that conditioning process. It's just by lowering that atmospheric pressure, creating that vacuum, that it boils that material off, and you're essentially flushing that out through fans, flushing that moisture out. And you're kind of using some of the same processes as a dehumidification kiln, except you're not bringing air back in. You're constantly keeping Keeping that pressure low in the chamber go one step further and add uh, an rf vacuum kiln same things going on here where the air is being sucked out but now we're essentially microwaving it if you've ever taken you know a, a hot dog or a pork chop or something like that and you nuke it in the microwave it gets rid ridiculously hot in the middle. Um, That's really what's going on here. Now we're speeding up that flashing off of the moisture on the inside by microwaving it, and we're reducing the stresses on the timber even more. So while a regular vacuum kiln is going to somewhat evenly dry material, there certainly will be a bit of a delay, especially the thicker the material is, those inner creamy gooey centers are not going to flash off quite as fast. Um, with an rf kiln you're dropping the atmospheric pressure below the boiling point of the water and you're you know battering that lumber with uh, radiation energy uh, in the form of that radio frequency that's causing the excitation of the water molecules and they're boiling off even faster so the rf vacuum kiln is perfect for really big stuff heavy timbers If you're a timber framer that wants to have uh, exposed timber beams inside the house, you really need kiln dried material there. You can't use the same air dried or even green material that you're using for the actual frame because they're going to check like crazy in the inside of the house. So you're looking for a much drier product and it needs to be dried 100% all the way through. You can't have that differential that's going to cause the outer checking and cause case hardening and all that kind of stuff. So using an RF vacuum kiln to uniformly dry 12 by 12s. It's the only way to do it. Um, Any other kiln will dry the outer layers down to like 12%, still leaving that moist inside. And that's generally okay for exterior stuff. But when you bring it into the interior and you subject it to modern climate control, that can be a really bad thing. And you get really, really big checks opening up, which people don't want. So that RF vacuum kiln really specializes on those heavy timbers. Six inches thick, eight inches thick, 15 inches thick, that type of stuff does really well. The other advantage of the vacuum kiln is there is a platen that sits over top of all of this and as the air is sucked out, that platen comes down and acts like a clamp and it can really hold those th- that wood stable. We do the same thing in our air drying yards and the seam kiln, the dehumidification kiln, just by stacking the lumber on top of one another, you're putting a huge amount of weight on the wood. And then a lot of times there'll be steel bands can be put into place in order to compress the lumber and to hold it nice and flat against the stickers. And that is not re. It's not preventing the wood from moving, but it's restraining it from remo- from moving out of control. Uh, in other words, from turning into a potato chip and you know warping all crazy. Just like if you were to steam bend the arm of a Windsor chair, you bend it around the form, you clamp it in place, and then you set it aside. Or more often than not, you put it in like a light bulb kiln in order to um, freeze it in that particular shape as the wood dries in it's bent form it will now hold that form and the drier you get it the less spring back you're going to have when you take it out of the clamps and take it off that form you're drying it to shape we do the same thing in shaping leather you you moisten it you wrap it around a form and you let it dry and it will hold that shape so in a kiln if you're holding it flat as you're moving as you're wetting it and then removing all that moisture it's going to want to stay flat its equilibrium position will be in that flat position Well, just like when it comes to veneer and we put it in a vacuum bag and we're producing uniform atmospheric pressure across every square inch of that surface, the same thing's happening in a vacuum kiln. So you get really, really nice flat lumber because that platen is coming down or that vacuum bag that it's sitting in is coming down and holding it under atmospheric pressure, which is a lot of pressure as we've talked about in the past. So that can be another benefit. you, You don't have to have... 7,000 board feet of lumber sitting on top of that stack in order to provide that heat. You don't, you certainly don't want to put steel bands into a kiln because you can get reaction and, and sticker staining and all kinds of stuff there. So the vacuum kiln can operate on a much, much smaller volume. Moreover, you want a smaller volume because think about it a huge steam kiln like I have at my yard, we've got seven of them that are just enormous, you know, gymnasium sized rooms. Think about what it would take to suck the air out of that. You know, NASA's got a room like that where they do that fun experiment where they drop the bowling ball on the feather and they fall at the exact same rate because it's in a vacuum. But it takes, you know, a super long time and an immense amount of energy to pump all the air out of that room. Same thing would happen with a gymnasium-sized steam kiln. It would be cost ineffective and take a long time to pump all the air out of there. But if you've got something that on the largest scale, maybe the size of a shipping container, down to like the size of a hot tub um, in some of the, the um, what shall I say, consumer model uh, vacuum kilns, it's a lot easier to suck the air out of there But obviously, the volume of material that you put in there is a very different story. So that was the biggest issue with vacuum kilns is you just can't put very much in there. And there's also a heck of a lot more handling involved. When your kiln, you can drive a forklift into the kiln. It's super easy to load and unload. But if you're talking about a shipping container or something small in a shipping container, you actually have to by hand load it. And that becomes very energy, um, a lot of energy on the case of caloric energy spent on the workers loading and unloading it. It's much, much slower. So from a high volume yard, like where I work, a vacuum kiln just does not make sense. Um, if they made it big enough that we could load it, unload it efficiently, then we would spend so much money just re- dropping, you know, sucking out all the air. So for the most part, vacuum kilns are going to excel on smaller volumes. So for a lot of the folks that are writing me that are, you know, running that wood miser bandsaw mill, this may be a good solution for you. You just have to, you know, figure out your, your your upfront costs and and what your turn rate will be and how much lumber can you actually produce. I think a lot of people tend to overlook the the turn rate, go to a lot of lumber yards. And um, I've done this actually for a couple of years at one of my local lumber yards. had a particularly unique piece of rosewood that I just kind of paid attention to, looked for some distinguishing characteristics on it. There were a couple of grade marks on it that made, made you look at that and go, oh, it's that same board. You know, going back, Five, six, 10 years, that board is still there. Now, granted, this is an extreme example. It's a very, um, well, very expensive, unique piece of rosewood that's not going to move that much. But when you start getting the slab lumber, slab lumber is unique, and it might sit on your shelves for a very long time. So the fact that you're able to turn out more material faster might seem like a good thing on face face value, but are you actually selling it? Because eventually you're just gonna run out of room and you keep producing more material. That's a whole other business issue there. So in keeping with this idea of talking about kilns, Those are really, we'll just call them three different types. We'll lump the the RF vacuum and the vacuum kilns together. Uh, Dehumidification kilns and steam kilns, those three methods. They're all very legitimate. Some of them, you know, they have pros, they have cons. Really what it comes down to is how much lumber do you need to dry? And what variety of lumber do you need to dry? The vacuum kiln will be more um, friendly to... Mixed species and odd-shaped species. Um, And what I mean by odd shape, if you're talking about slabs and live-edge stuff, when you stick it in a vacuum kiln and that bag, most of them use a bladder-like bag, that bag comes down, it squeezes out the air, and it conforms to the shape of what you have. So you can hold things flat. In um, a steam kiln or dehumidification kiln, you can put weight on it to try to keep them flat. But if there's any irregular shapes, that's dead air that just takes more time to heat up. Or it can create vortices where there's more air flowing through that wider spot than there is the narrower spot next to it. So the the inner parts of that slab are not getting as much air passed over them because the air is passing to the, the area of least resistance around the edge where that live edge is, where that wider gap is. So if you come to my yard and you look at a kiln being loaded, it's like a game of Tetris. Everything is packed in there very precisely so that the dead air around the boards is pretty much even throughout the entire kiln, so you get an even flow of air through it. Hard to do that when you've got a bunch of weird-shaped things. It's also hard to manage multiple species you could put kind of like species together, but you may not have that option if you're a smaller operation where you're sawing you know walnut one day oak the next day cherry the next day to tamarind and, and catalpa the next day they're all going to have dramatically different properties dramatically different kiln drying schedules if you try to put those in the same kiln together you're going to have real problems you know you put your pizza bagels in at 350 degrees and your french bread pizza at 475 degrees something's going to go wrong there right <laughs> Let's be honest. It's not like it's fine dining. Just set it all at 450 and walk away for 20 minutes and come back. Doesn't work that way with lumber, right? You're going to ruin that lumber. You're going to case harden or reverse case harden that material and it's ruined. It turns into toothpicks. It's completely unusable and certainly unsellable at that point. So a vacuum kiln, Because you're dealing with smaller quantities, you may saw up one log of oak and that's enough to fill your kiln. So you don't have to worry about the mixed species thing. Moreover, the odd shape is going to be conformed to by that vacuum bladder and really make things a heck of a lot easier. So the dehumidification kilns can be made in smaller sizes and they become really energy efficient at that point because it's a much smaller space to heat up and it's reusing that air. The steam kilns are really the domains of the large wholesale distribution yards. Those are loaded and unloaded by forklift. They're room sized. They're putting you know tens of thousands of board feet in per kiln run. That's the primary difference is volume. And that's one of the reasons that we can still continue to operate steam kilns because it's just the most efficient way to deal with the volume of lumber that we have. So there you go. Steam kilns, dehumidification kilns and vacuum kilns. They're all um, basically doing the same process. They're dropping that temperature down. Some of them do them in a more gentler way, like a vacuum kiln. Um, Some of them require, uh, can be run entirely off the grid like a steam kiln as long as you've got the combustion agent, the sawdust to run it. So pros and cons to all of them. I really wanna know what questions you guys have. I've, I've just kind of touched on the surface of what goes into kiln drying lumber. Put it this way it's a lot more than just heating up the room and walking away Um, there is a very strict schedule that's got to be followed and the ability to control the wet bulb temperature aka how much moisture is in the air is of utter utter importance or you're going to completely ruin the lumber so there's definitely an art to it that art has been um solidified over the years so that if you can follow the instructions and read a thermometer um you should be okay but uh yeah it's not quite as straightforward as one might think so let me know what questions you have about kiln drying uh, if you have questions about air drying, let me know as well. I'm I'm happy to uh, to talk about this a little bit more. It's something that doesn't get talked about much. It's is not a very glamorous part of it, but as more and more of you out there start sawing your own lumber and start thinking about the conditioning of the lumber after the fact, this is going to come up. And as these vacuum kilns become more affordable and, and sized appropriately, we're going to see more and more of them coming into the market. So again, if you have questions, go to lumberupdate.com. You can fill out the form there or you can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. And finally, if you like the show, you want to support the show, consider becoming a patron of the show, patreon.com slash lumberupdate. I sincerely appreciate your support. That's all for me, folks. Go buy some lumber.